0: section three of the american crisis by thomas paine this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by max Weiner. the crisis number three published philadelphia april 19 1777 part one In the progress of politics as in the common occurrences of life. We are not only apt to forget the ground we have traveled over, but frequently neglect to gather up experience as we go. We expend, if I may so say, the knowledge of every day on the circumstances that produce it, and journey on in search of new matter and new refinements, but as it is pleasant and sometimes useful to look back even to the first periods of infancy, and trace the turns and windings through which we have passed, so may we likewise derive many advantages by halting a while in our political career, and taking a review of the wondrous complicated labyrinth of little more than yesterday. Truly, may we say, that never did men grow old in so short a time. We have crowded the business of an age into the compass of a few months, and have been driven through such a rapid succession of things, that for the want of leisure to think, we unavoidably wasted knowledge as we came, and have left nearly as much behind us as we brought with us. But the road is yet rich with the fragments, and before we finally lose sight of them, will repay us for the trouble of stopping to pick them up. Were a man to be totally deprived of memory, He would be incapable of forming any just opinion. Everything about him would seem a chaos. He would have even his own history to ask from everyone. And by not knowing how the world went in his absence, he would be at a loss to know how it ought to go on when he recovered, or, rather, return to it again. In like manner, though in less degree, a too great inattention to past occurrences retards and bewilders our judgment in everything while, on the contrary, by comparing what is past with what is present, we frequently hit on the true character of both, and become wise with very little trouble. It is a kind of counter-march, by which we get into the rear of time, and mark the movements and meaning of things as we make our return. There are certain circumstances which, at the time of their happening, are a kind of riddles, and as every riddle is to be followed by its answer, so those kinds of circumstances will be followed by their events, and those events are always the true solution. A considerable space of time may lapse between, and unless we continue our observations from the one to the other, the harmony of them will pass away unnoticed. But the misfortune is, that partly from the pressing necessity of some instant things, and partly from the impatience of our own tempers, we are frequently in such a hurry to make out the meaning of everything, as fast as it happens, that we thereby never truly understand it, and not only start new difficulties to ourselves by so doing, but, as it were, embarrass Providence in her good designs. I have been civil in stating this fault on a large scale, for, as it now stands, it does not appear to be leveled against any particular set of men, but were it to be refined a little further, it might afterwards be applied to the Tories with a degree of striking propriety, those men that have been remarkable for drawing sudden conclusions from single facts. The least apparent mishap on our side, or the least seeming advantage on the part of the enemy, have determined with them the fate of a whole campaign. By this hasty judgment, they have converted a retreat into a defeat, mistook generalship for error, while every little advantage, purposely given the enemy either to weaken their strength by dividing it, embarrass their counsels by multiplying their objects, or to secure a greater post by the surrender of a less, has been instantly magnified into a conquest. Thus, by quartering ill policy upon ill principles, they have frequently promoted the cause they designed to injure, and injured that which they intended to promote it is probable the campaign may open before this number comes from the press the enemy have long lain idle and amused themselves with carrying on the war by proclamations only while they continue their delay our strength increases and were they to move to action now it is a circumstantial proof that they have no reinforcement coming wherefore in either case the comparative advantage will be ours Like a wounded, disabled whale they want only time and room to die in, and though in the agony of their exit it may be unsafe to live within the flapping of their tail, yet every hour shortens their date and lessens their power of mischief. If anything happens while this number is in the press, it will afford me a subject for the last pages of it. At present I am tired of waiting, and as neither the enemy nor the state of politics have yet produced anything new, I am thereby left in the field of general matter, undirected by any striking or particular object. This crisis, therefore, will be made up rather of variety than novelty, and consist more of things useful than things wonderful. The success of the cause, the union of the people, and the means of supporting and securing both, are points which cannot be too much attended to, he who doubts of the former is a desponding coward, and he who willfully disturbs the latter is a traitor. Their characters are easily fixed, and under these short descriptions I leave them for the present. One of the greatest degrees of sentimental union which America ever knew was in denying the right of the British Parliament, quote, to bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever, quote. The Declaration is, in its form, an almighty one and is the loftiest stretch of arbitrary power that ever one set of men or one country claimed over another. Taxation was nothing more than putting the declared right into practice. And, this failing, recourse was had to arms, as a means to establish both the right and the practice, or to answer a worse purpose, which will be mentioned in the course of this number. And in order to repay themselves the expense of an army, and to profit by their own injustice. The colonies were, by another law, declared to be in a state of actual rebellion, and of consequence all property therein would fall to the conquerors. The colonies, on their part, first denied the right, secondly they suspended the use of taxable articles, and petitioned against the practice of taxation, and these failing, they thirdly defended their property by force, as soon as it was forcibly invaded, and, in answer to the Declaration of Rebellion and Non-Protection, published their Declaration of Independence and Right of Self-Protection. These, in a few words, are the different stages of the quarrel, and the parts are so intimately and necessarily connected with each other as to admit of no separation. A person, to use a trite phrase, must be a Whig or a Tory in a lump his feelings as a man may be wounded, his charity as a Christian may be moved, but his political principles must go through all the cases on one side or the other. He cannot be a Whig at this stage and a Tory in that. If he says he is against the united independence of the continent, he is, to all intents and purposes, against her in all the rest, because this last comprehends the whole. And he may just as well say that Britain was right in declaring us rebels, right in taxing us, and right in declaring her right to bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever. It signifies nothing what neutral ground of his own creating he may skulk upon for shelter, for the quarrel in no stage of it hath afforded any such ground. And either we or Britain are absolutely right or absolutely wrong through the whole. Britain, like a gamester nearly ruined, has now put all her losses into one bet, and is playing a desperate game for the total. If she wins it, she wins from me my life. She wins the continent as the forfeited property of rebels, the right of taxing those that are left as reduced subjects, and the power of binding them slaves. And the single die which determines this unparalleled event is whether we support our independence or she overturn it. This is coming to the point at once. Here is the touchstone to try men by he that is not a supporter of the independent states of america in the same degree that his religious and political principles would suffer him to support the government of any other country of which he called himself a subject is in the american sense of the word a tory and the instant that he endeavors to bring his toryism into practice he becomes a traitor the first can only be detected by a general test and the law hath already provided for the latter It is unnatural and impolitic to admit men who would root up our independence to have any share in our legislation, either as electors or representatives, because the support of our independence rests in great measure on the vigor and purity of our public bodies. Would Britain, even in a time of peace, much less in war, suffer an election to be carried by men who profess themselves to be not her subjects? or allow such to sit in Parliament? Certainly not. But there are a certain species of Tories, with whom conscience or principle has nothing to do, and who are so from avarice only. Some of the first fortunes on the continent, on the part of the Whigs, are staked on the issue of our present measures. And shall disaffection only be rewarded with security? Can anything be a greater inducement to a miserly man? than the hope of making his mammon safe? And though the scheme be fraught with every character of folly, yet so long as he supposes that by doing nothing materially criminal against America on one part, and by expressing his private disapprobation against independence as palliative with the enemy on the other, he stands in a safe line between both. While, I say, this ground be suffered to remain, craft and the spirit of avarice will point it out, and men will not be wanting to fill up this most contemptible of all characters these men ashamed to own the sordid cause from whence their disaffection springs add thereby meanness to meanness by endeavoring to shelter themselves under the mask of hypocrisy that is they had rather be thought to be tories from some kind of principle than tories by having no principle at all but till such time as they can show some real reason natural, political, or conscientious, on which their objections to independence are founded, we are not obliged to give them credit for being Tories of the first stamp, but must set them down as Tories of the last. In the second number of the crisis I endeavored to show the impossibility of the enemies making any conquest of America, that nothing was wanting on our part but patience and perseverance, and that, with these virtues, our success, as far as human speculation could discern, seemed as certain as fate. But there are many among us who, influenced by others, have regularly gone back from the principles they once held, in proportion as we have gone forward. And as it is the unfortunate lot of many a good man to live within the neighborhood of disaffected ones, I shall therefore, for the sake of confirming the one and recovering the other, endeavor in the space of a page or two to go over some of the leading principles in support of independence. It is a much pleasanter task to prevent vice than to punish it, and however our tempers may be gratified by resentment, or our national expenses eased by forfeited estates, harmony and friendship is nevertheless the happiest condition a country can be blessed with. The principal arguments in support of independence may be comprehended under the four following heads. First, the natural right of the continent to independence. Second, her interest in being independent. Third, the necessity. And, fourth, the moral advantages arising therefrom. First, the natural right of the continent to independence is a point which never yet was called into question. It will not even admit of a debate. To deny such a right would be a kind of atheism against nature, and the best answer to such an objection would be, quote, the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. Second, the interest of the continent in being independent is a point as clearly right as the former. America, by her own internal industry, and unknown to all the powers of Europe, was, at the beginning of the dispute, arrived at a pitch of greatness, trade, and population, beyond which it was the interest of Britain not to suffer her to pass, lest she grow too powerful to be kept subordinate, she began to view this country with the same uneasy, malicious eye with which a covetous guardian would view his ward, whose estate he had been enriching himself by for twenty years, and saw him just arriving at manhood. And America owes no more to Britain for her present maturity than the ward would to the guardian for being twenty-one years of age. That America hath flourished at the time she was under the government of Britain is true. But there is every natural reason to believe that had she been an independent country from the first settlement thereof, uncontrolled by any foreign power, free to make her own laws, regulate and encourage her own commerce, she had by this time been of much greater worth than now. The case is simply this. The first settlers in the different colonies were left to shift for themselves, unnoticed and unsupported by any European government. But as the tyranny and persecution of the old world daily drove numbers to the new, and, as by the favor of heaven on their industry and perseverance, they grew into importance. So, in a like degree, they became an object of profit to the greedy eyes of Europe. It was impossible in this state of infancy, however thriving and promising, that they could resist the power of any armed invader that should seek to bring them under his authority. In this situation, Britain thought it worth her while to claim them, and the continent received and acknowledged the claimer it was in reality of no very great importance who was her master seeing that from the force and ambition of the different powers of europe she must till she acquired strength enough to assert her own right acknowledge some one as well perhaps britain as another and it might have been as well to have been under the states of holland as any the same hopes of engrossing and profiting by her trade by not oppressing it too much would have operated alike with any master, and produced to the colonies the same effects. The clamor of protection, likewise, was all a farce, because in order to make that protection necessary, she must first, by her own quarrels, create us enemies. Hard terms, indeed. To know whether it would be the interest of the continent to be independent, we need only ask this easy, simple question. Is it the interest of a man to be a boy all his life? the answer to one will be the answer to both america hath been one continued scene of legislative contention from the first king's representative to the last and this was unavoidably founded in the natural opposition of interest between the old country and the new a governor sent from england or receiving his authority therefrom ought never to have been considered in any other light than that of a genteel commissioned spy whose private business was information and his public business a kind of civilized oppression. In the first of these characters he was to watch the tempers, sentiments, and disposition of the people, the growth of trade, and the increase of private fortunes, and, in the latter, to suppress all such acts of assemblies, however beneficial to the people, which did not directly or indirectly throw some increase of power or profit into the hands of those that sent him. America, till now, could never be called a free country, because her legislation depended on the will of a man three thousand miles distant whose interest was in opposition to ours and who by a single no could forbid what law he pleased the freedom of trade likewise is to a trading country an article of such importance that the principal source of wealth depends upon it and it is impossible that any country can flourish as it otherwise might do whose commerce is engrossed cramped and fettered by the laws and mandates of another yet these evils, and more than I can here enumerate, the continent has suffered by being under the government of England. By an independence we clear the whole at once, put an end to the business of unanswered petitions and fruitless remonstrances, exchange Britain for Europe, shake hands with the world, live at peace with the world, and trade to any market where we can buy and sell. Third, the necessity, likewise, of being independent, even before it was declared, became so evident and important that the continent ran the risk of being ruined every day that she delayed it. There was reason to believe that Britain would endeavor to make an European matter of it, and, rather than lose the whole, would dismember it, like Poland, and dispose of her several claims to the highest bidder. Genoa, failing in her attempts to reduce Corsica, made a sale of it to the French, and such traffics had been common in the Old World we had at that time no ambassador in any part of europe to counteract her negotiations and by that means she had the range of every foreign court uncontradicted on our part we even knew nothing of the treaty for the hessians till it was concluded and the troops ready to embark had we been independent before we had probably prevented her obtaining them we had no credit abroad because of our rebellious dependency Our ships could claim no protection in foreign ports, because we afforded them no justifiable reason for granting it to us. The calling ourselves subjects, and at the same time fighting against the power which we acknowledged, was a dangerous precedent to all Europe. If the grievances justified the taking up arms, they justified our separation. If they did not justify our separation, neither could they justify our taking up arms. All Europe was interested in reducing us as rebels and all Europe, or the greatest part at least, is interested in supporting us as independent states. At home our condition was still worse. Our currency had no foundation, and the fall of it would have ruined Whig and Tory alike. We had no other law than a kind of moderated passion, no other civil power than an honest mob, and no other protection than the temporary attachment of one man to another. Had independence been delayed a few months longer, This continent would have been plunged into irrecoverable confusion, some violent for it, some against it, till in the general cabal the rich would have been ruined and the poor destroyed. It is to independence that every Tory owes the present safety which he lives in, for by that, and that only, we emerged from a state of dangerous suspense and became a regular people. The necessity, likewise, of being independent, had there been no rupture between Britain and America would in a little time have brought one on. The increasing importance of commerce, the weight and perplexity of legislation, the entangled state of European politics, would daily have shown to the continent the impossibility of continuing subordinate. For, after the coolest reflection on the matter, this must be allowed. That Britain was too jealous of America to govern it justly, too ignorant of it to govern it well, and too far distant from it to govern it at all. Fourth, but what weigh most with all men of serious reflection are the moral advantages arising from independence? War and desolation have become the trade of the old world, and America neither could nor can be under the government of Britain without becoming a sharer of her guilt, and a partner in all the dismal commerce of death. The spirit of dueling, extended on a national scale, is a proper character for European wars. They have seldom any other motive than pride, or any other object than fame. The conquerors and the conquered are generally ruined alike, and the chief difference at last is that the one marches home with his honors and the other without them. Tis the natural temper of the English to fight for a feather if they suppose that feather to be an affront, and America, without the right of asking why, must have abetted in every quarrel and abided by its fate. It is a shocking situation to live in, that one country must be brought into all the wars of another, whether the measure be right or wrong, or whether she will or not. Yet this, in the fullest extent, was and ever would be the unavoidable consequence of the connection. Surely the Quakers forgot their own principles when, in their late testimony, they call this connection, with these military and miserable appendages hanging to it, the Happy Constitution. Britain, for centuries past, has been nearly fifty years out of every hundred at war with some power or other. It certainly ought to be a conscientious as well as political consideration with America, not to dip her hands in the bloody work of Europe. Our situation affords us a retreat from their cavils, And the present happy Union of the States bids fair for extirpating the future use of arms from one quarter of the world. Yet such had been the irreligious politics of the present leaders of the Quakers, that, for the sake of they scarce know what, they would cut off every hope of such a blessing, by tying this continent to Britain, like Hector to the chariot-wheel of Achilles, to be dragged through all the miseries of endless European wars. The connection, viewed from this ground, is distressing to every man who has the feelings of humanity. By having Britain for our master, we became enemies to the greatest part of Europe, and they to us, and the consequence was war inevitable. By being our own masters, independent of any foreign one, we have Europe for our friends, and the prospect of an endless peace among ourselves. Those who were advocates for the British government over these colonies were obliged to limit both their arguments and their ideas to the period of a European peace only. The moment Britain became plunged in war, every supposed convenience to us vanished, and all we could hope for was not to be ruined. Could this be a desirable condition for a young country to be in? Had the French pursued their fortune immediately after the defeat of Braddock last war, This city and province had then experienced the woeful calamities of being a British subject. A scene of the same kind might happen again, for America, considered as a subject of the crown of Britain, would ever have been the seat of war and the bone of contention between the two powers. On the whole, if the future expulsion of arms from one quarter of the world would be a desirable object to a peaceable man, if the freedom of trade to every part of it, can engage the attention of a man of business, if the support or fall of millions of currency can affect our interests, if the entire possession of estates, by cutting off the lordly claims of Britain over the soil, deserves the regard of landed property, and if the right of making our own laws, uncontrolled by royal or ministerial spies or mandates, be worthy our care as freemen, then are all men interested in the support of independence, and may he that supports it not be driven from the blessing and live unpitied beneath the servile sufferings of scandalous subjection we have been amused with the tales of ancient wonders we have read and wept over the histories of other nations applauded censured or pitied as their cases affected us the fortitude and patience of the sufferers the justness of their cause the weight of their oppressions and oppressors the object to be saved or lost, with all the consequences of a defeat or a conquest, have, in the hour of sympathy, bewitched our hearts and chained it to their fate. But where is the power that ever made war upon petitioners? Or where is the war on which a world was staked till now? We may not, perhaps, be wise enough to make all the advantages we ought of our independence. But they are nevertheless marked and presented to us with every character of great and good, and worthy the hand of him who sent them. I look through the present trouble to a time of tranquillity, when we shall have it in our power to set an example of peace to all the world. Were the Quakers really impressed and influenced by the quiet principles they profess to hold, they would, however they might disapprove the means, be the first of all men to approve of independence, because, by separating ourselves from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, it affords an opportunity never given to man before, of carrying their favorite principle of peace into general practice, by establishing governments that shall hereafter exist without wars. O ye fallen, cringing, priest and pemberton ridden people! What more can we say of ye than that a religious Quaker is a valuable character, and a political Quaker a real Jesuit? having thus gone over some of the principal points in support of independence, I must now request the reader to return with me to the period when it first began to be a public doctrine, and to examine the progress it has made among the various classes of men. The area I mean to begin at is the breaking out of hostilities, April 19, 1775. Until this event happened, the continent seemed to view the dispute as a kind of lawsuit for a matter of right, litigating between the old country and the new, and she felt the same kind and degree of horror as if she had seen an oppressive plaintiff, at the head of a band of ruffians, enter the court while the cause was before it, and put the judge, the jury, the defendant, and his counsel to the sword. Perhaps a more heartfelt convulsion never reached a country with the same degree of power and rapidity before, and never may again. Pity for the sufferers, mixed with indignation at the violence, and heightened with apprehensions of undergoing the same fate, made the affair of Lexington the affair of the continent. Every part of it felt the shock, and all vibrated together. A general promotion of sentiment took place. Those who had drank deeply into Whiggish principles, that is, the right and necessity, not only of opposing, but wholly setting aside the power of the crown as soon as it became practically dangerous, for, in theory, it was always so, stepped into the first stage of independence, while another class of Whigs, equally sound in principle but not so sanguine in enterprise, attached themselves the stronger to the cause, and fell close in with the rear of the former. Their partition was a mere point. Numbers of the moderate men, whose chief fault at that time arose from entertaining a better opinion of Britain than she deserved, convinced now of their mistake, gave her up, and publicly declared themselves good Whigs, while the Tories, seeing it was no longer a laughing matter, either sank into silent obscurity, or contented themselves with coming forth and abusing General Gage. Not a single advocate appeared to justify the action of that day. It seemed to appear to everyone with the same magnitude, struck everyone with the same force, and created in everyone the same abhorrence. From this period, we may date the growth of independence. If the many circumstances which happened in this memorable time be taken in one view and compared with each other, they will justify a conclusion which seems not to have been attended to. I mean a fixed design in the king and ministry of driving America into arms, in order that they might be furnished with a pretense for seizing the whole continent as the immediate property of the crown, a noble plunder for hungry courtiers. It ought to be remembered that the first petition from the Congress was at this time unanswered on the part of the British King, that the motion, called Lord North's Motion of the 20th of February, 1775, arrived in America at the latter end of March. This motion was to be laid by the several governors then in being before the assembly of each province, and the first assembly before which it was laid was the Assembly of Pennsylvania in May following this being the just state of the case i then ask why were hostilities commenced between the time of passing the resolve in the house of commons of the 20th of february and the time of the assembly's meeting to deliberate upon it degrading and famous as that motion was there is nevertheless reason to believe that the king and his adherents were afraid the colonies would agree to it and lest they should took effectual care that they should not by provoking them with hostilities in the interim. They had not the least doubt at that time of conquering America at one blow. And what they expected to get by a conquest, being infinitely greater than anything they could hope to get either by taxation or accommodation, they seemed determined to prevent even the possibility of hearing each other, lest America should disappoint their greedy hopes of the whole by listening even to their own terms. On the one hand they refused to hear the petition of the continent on the other hand took effectual care that the continent should not hear them that the motion of the twentieth february and the orders for commencing hostilities were both concerted by the same person or persons and not the latter by general gage as was falsely imagined at first is evident from an extract of a letter of his to the administration read among other papers in the house of commons in which he informs his masters Quote, that though their idea of his disarming certain countries was the right one yet it required him to be master of the country in order to enable him to execute it End quote. this was prior to the commencement of hostilities and consequently before the motion of the 20th february could be deliberated on by the several assemblies perhaps it may be asked why was the motion passed if there was at the same time a plan to aggravate the americans not to listen to it Lord North assigned one reason himself, which was a hope of dividing them. This was publicly tempting them to reject it, that if, in case the injury of arms should fail in provoking them sufficiently, the insult of such a declaration might fill it up, but by passing the motion, and getting it afterward rejected in America, and enable them, in their wicked idea of politics, among other things, to hold up the colonies to foreign powers, with every possible mark of disobedience and rebellion. They had applied to those powers not to supply the continent with arms, ammunition, etc and it was necessary they should incense them against us by assigning on their own part some seeming reputable reason why, by dividing it had a tendency to weaken the states and likewise to perplex the adherents of America in England. but the principal scheme and that which has marked their character in every part of their conduct was a design of precipitating the colonies into a state which they might afterwards deem rebellion, and under that pretense put an end to all future complaints, petitions, and remonstrances, by seizing the whole at once. They had ravaged one part of the globe till it could glut them no longer. Their prodigality required new plunder, and through the East India Article T they hoped to transfer their rapine from that quarter of the world to this. Every designed quarrel had its pretense and the same barbarian avarice accompanied the plant to America, which ruined the country that produced it. That men never turn rogues without turning fools is a maxim sooner or later universally true. The commencement of hostilities, being in the beginning of April, was of all times the worst chosen. The Congress were to meet the 10th of May following, and the distress the continent felt at this unparalleled outrage gave a stability to that body which no other circumstance could have done. It suppressed, too, all inferior debates, and bound them together by necessitous affection, without giving them time to differ upon trifles. The suffering, likewise, softened the whole body of the people into a degree of pliability, which laid the principal foundation stone of union, order, and government, and which at any other time might only have fretted, and then faded away unnoticed and unimproved. But Providence, who knows best how to time her misfortunes as well as her immediate favors, chose this to be the time, and who dared dispute it? It did not seem the disposition of the people at this crisis, to heap petition upon petition, while the former remained unanswered. The measure, however, was carried in Congress, and a second petition was sent, of which I shall only remark that it was submissive even to a dangerous fault because the prayer of it appealed solely to what it called the prerogative of the crown, while the matter in dispute was confessedly constitutional. But even this petition, flattering as it was, was still not so harmonious as the chink of cash, and consequently not sufficiently grateful to the tyrant and his ministry. From every circumstance it is evident that it was the determination of the British court to have nothing to do with America, but to conquer her fully and absolutely. They were certain of success, and the field of battle was the only place of treaty. I am confident there are thousands and tens of thousands in America who wonder now that they should ever have thought otherwise. But the sin of that day was the sin of civility. Yet it operated against our present good in the same manner that a civil opinion of the devil would against our future peace. Independence was a doctrine scarce and rare, even towards the conclusion of the year 1775. All our politics had been founded on the hope of expectation of making the matter up, a hope which, though general on the side of America, had never entered the head or heart of the British court. Their hope was conquest and confiscation. Good heavens! What volumes of thanks does America owe to Britain? What infinite obligation to the tool that fills with paradoxical vacancy the throne? Nothing but the sharpest essence of villainy, compounded with the strongest distillation of folly, could have produced a menstruum that would have effected a separation. The Congress of 1774 administered an abortive medicine to independence by prohibiting the importation of goods, and the succeeding Congress rendered the dose still more dangerous by continuing it. Had independence been a settled system with America, as Britain has advanced, She ought to have doubled her importation, and prohibited in some degree her exportation. And this single circumstance is sufficient to acquit America, before any jury of nations, of having a continental plan of independence in view. A charge which, had it been true, would have been honorable, but is so grossly false, that either the amazing ignorance or the willful dishonesty of the British Court is effectually proved by it. The second petition, like the first, produced no answer it was scarcely acknowledged to have been received the british court were too determined in their villainy to even act artfully and in their rage for conquest neglected the necessary subtleties for obtaining it they might have divided distracted and played a thousand tricks with us had they been as cunning as they were cruel this last indignity gave a new spring to independence those who knew the savage obstinacy of the king and the jobbing, gambling spirit of the court predicted the fate of the petition as soon as it was sent from America. For, the men being known, their measures were easily foreseen. As politicians, we ought not so much to ground our hopes on the reasonableness of the thing we ask as on the reasonableness of the person of whom we ask it. Who would expect discretion from a fool, candor from a tyrant, or justice from a villain? As every prospect of accommodation seemed now to fail fast, men began to think seriously on the matter, and their reason, being thus stripped of the false hope which had long encompassed it, became approachable by fair debate, yet still the bulk of the people hesitated. They startled at the novelty of independence, without once considering that our getting into arms at first was a more extraordinary novelty, and that all other nations had gone through the work of independence before us. They doubted, likewise, the ability of the continent to support it, without reflecting that it required the same force to obtain an accommodation by arms as an independence. If the one was acquirable, the other was the same, because to accomplish either it was necessary that our strength should be too great for Britain to subdue, and it was too unreasonable to suppose that with the power of being masters we should submit to be servants. Their caution at this time was exceedingly misplaced for if they were able to defend their property and maintain their rights by arms, they, consequently, were able to defend and support their independence. And in proportion, as these men saw the necessity and correctness of the measure, they honestly and openly declared and adopted it, and the part that they had acted since has done them honor and fully established their characters. Error in opinion has this peculiar advantage with it, that the foremost point of the contrary ground, may at any time be reached by the sudden exertion of a thought, and it frequently happens in sentimental differences, that some striking circumstance, or some forcible reason quickly conceived, will affect in an instant what neither argument nor example could produce in an age. INSERT. In this state of political suspense, the pamphlet Common Sense made its appearance, and the success it met with does not become me to mention. Dr. Franklin, Mr. Samuel, and John Adams were severally spoken of as the supposed author. I had not, at that time, the pleasure either of personally knowing nor being known to the two last gentlemen. The favor of Dr. Franklin's friendship I possessed in England, and my introduction to this part of the world was through his patronage. I happened, when a schoolboy, to pick up a pleasing natural history of Virginia, and my inclination from that day of seeing the western side of the Atlantic never left me. In October, 1775, Dr. Franklin proposed giving me such materials, as were in his hands, towards completing a history of the present transactions, and seemed desirous of having the first volume out the next spring. I had then formed the outlines of Common Sense, and finished nearly the first part, and, as I supposed the doctor's design in getting out a history, was to open the new year with a new system. I expected to surprise him with the production on that subject, much earlier than he thought of, and without informing him of what I was doing, got it ready for the press as fast as I conveniently could, and sent him the first pamphlet that was printed off. End Insert End of The Crisis, Number 3, Part 1, by Thomas Paine Recording by Max Weiner, Alpharetta, Georgia